This is the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast, where you learn the best tips and strategies in the world to help you become a smarter, more effective tennis player. You'll hear interviews with pro tour doubles players and coaches, including easy-to-use lessons to improve your game and win more matches. My name is Will Bocek, founder of the Tennis Tribe, doubles strategy coach, and host of the show. In this episode, I talk with Steve Smith from Great Base Tennis. Now, Steve has been coaching tennis for nearly 50 years, and he probably has more tennis knowledge in his left pinky than I have in my entire body. Um, He has so much knowledge of every single aspect of the industry, of the coaching profession, uh, and of the game in general. And you're going to hear that through a lot of stories that he tells. Um, He likes to give advice and teach through stories, and you'll learn that early on in this conversation. Um, Steve has uh, coached at literally every level of the game. He's coached juniors, uh, rising pro players, uh, current pro players. Um, He's worked with federations, universities, associations uh, in over 30 countries, Um, and his former students uh, are also now coaches of uh, academies across the world, um, pro players, uh, things like that. So he has so much knowledge um, that what you'll find in this conversation is I, I try to guide it a little bit less than I normally would and kind of let Steve tell his stories uh, and let him talk a little bit. So what I think you're going to find is there's going to be three or four different stories that Steve tells that are going to really stick with you, hit home with you, uh, and help you improve your game. Um, I know there's a few things uh, from this conversation that I'm going to go back and listen to and take away uh, for myself. Um, we do talk a little bit about double strategy as well as volley technique. He talks a lot about using the proper grip on your volleys, uh, which we're going to link to more of in the show notes. So uh, this is a really wide-ranging conversation. Um, it's definitely story-intensive. He talks Um, a lot about stories from uh, the 70s, the 80s, how doubles has changed, uh, and then recent stories, um, for example, the uh, Cincinnati Masters that was just completed. He talks about a few matches in that. So um, this is a a really fun conversation that I had uh, with Steve. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, enjoy uh, this conversation with Coach Steve Smith. All right, and we're live here with Steve Smith from Great Base Tennis. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Will. Look forward to talking to you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this as well. Um, Steve, I wanted to start, uh, and before each show, I I do a lot of research online uh, of my guests, try to read a lot about them, and um, I read your description on Great Base greatbasetennis.com. And I wanted to start by just reading that to the audience. Um, and then I want you to tell us kind of who you are and what you do and, and tell us a little bit about your story. But this is, um, as far as tennis coaches go, this is one of my favorite um, about page tennis descriptions that I've probably ever read. So it says, Steve Smith has close to 50 years of diversified experience. His life work has been studying tennis master's 
and methodologies. From an academic standpoint, Steve designed and developed the first comprehensive curriculum and degree plan for students seeking occupational competency as tennis teaching pro managers. He has worked as a tennis educator for families, federations, universities, and associations in over 30 countries. His former students work all over the world as teachers, coaches, and administrators. His students and his students' students have also had success at every level of competitive tennis. So, Steve, there's a lot in that. Um, Tell us, what do you do? I've teased people with my name being so common, Steve Smith. That at one time, I had the world's record in the pole vault. I've been in the quarterback at Michigan. I played in the NFL, the NBA. A lot of Steve Smiths in the world. Um, right. <laughs> but what do I do? I basically, for the most part, teach uh, competitive juniors and teach tennis teachers. Although I've certainly, all my years in the game, I've done all sorts of early childhood development, adult tennis. Um, but I would say right now we, with great base tennis, are trying to carry the torch of for tennis teachers from the past. You know, you hear the term old school. I always say old school, new school. There is no school. So, in addition to helping junior tennis players and tennis teachers, we do spend a lot of time. And actually, Andy Fitzgerald's wife have helped out so much in the last few years. I've known Andy for twenty plus years, but we give out a lot of free educational uh, content. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so yeah, people can check that out at, at uh, greatbasetennis.com. Um, and just reading the description and knowing what I do know about you, it, it, it does seem like you're both a coach and a coach for coaches. Is that accurate? Yeah. The great John Wayne said, everyone's a coach because everyone gives advice. <laughs> um, a lot of advice is free. And the reason it's free is not worth anything, but mm. yeah. So um, my background, I said, told the story many times. I grew up in ice hockey. I'm a product mm-hmm. of the tennis boom. Uh, James Van Allen invented the uh, tiebreaker. First was on the scene in 1970, and then tennis could be packaged. Everyone in the 70s fell in love with tennis. I have an older brother who was uh, getting a PhD in Russian studies. He studied uh, Russian hockey and then other systems. Um, not knowing what I wanted to do for a living, Uh, Back in the day, I used to hitchhike back and forth, and I was hitting some tennis balls. It's really a story circumstance, but I remember Dave Eddy, who, great guy, spent a lot of time with over the years. He's a teaching pro that introduced me to the tennis world uh, from the hockey world. I I put two and two together that I wasn't going to be in the NHL. I wasn't going to be a professional hockey player, Mm -hmm. but I could learn how to play tennis, which was really appealing to me, but also study tennis and then travel the world. So, um I made that transition uh, very, very early uh, before I was uh, 20 years old. When I was 19 years old. I was uh, just took the step said, okay, I'm going to you know, try to become a tennis teaching pro manager. Okay. So, so you had played tennis, but you weren't, you weren't thinking about like a professional tennis no, no, playing wasn't career a, I wasn't or anything. It goes to think about being a professional player at all. I, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not a silver spoon kid, but I, my parents, I got a job as my parents found a job for me as a dishwasher in the Adirondack mountains. And I was in a cabin and next mm-hmm. to the cabin were tennis courts. And I started banging some balls around. And then when I went to prep school, I, I really didn't play tennis, but it, my senior year, the headmaster reinstated a rule that 
most prep schools still have to this day, boarding schools in New England, mm-hmm. especially where you have to play a sport every season. So I'm a small guy and I ran cross country to get in shape. And then, so when they reinstated the rule that the hockey players had to play a spring sport, I signed up for tennis. Okay. And even when I went, I went to Oswego state initially, uh, one of the SUNY schools in New York. And I even went out for the tennis team. Um, but back in the day, you played three different sports. So I actually, the coach kept me on the tennis team mm-hmm. and all these years later. Now I have a pretty good idea what the level was. It wasn't very high to say mm-hmm. the least, but when the ice was put in in the middle of October, I told the coach, I said, hi, I have to quit. I'm, I'm here to play hockey. And he wasn't too happy. <laughs> with me. So I had an operation on my ankle and um, my freshman year in, in playing college hockey and, um, the doctor gave me a few minutes of time for rehab and I he said, what are you going to do to get back in shape? And I said, I do a lot of distance running. And he said, well, what else do you do? I said, I knock a few tennis balls around. And so that's where it, you know, that's, that's, but I did, uh, I was told to become a tennis teacher, tennis coach. You have to learn how to play. Mm-hmm. So I did a hard five years of being a tennis player. That, um, when I was a perennial tennis bum in Boca Raton, Florida, um, did the whole, um, live in a van, play tournaments okay. because you can't afford to pay the rent. Um, so I didn't really learn tennis through osmosis and, um, I was really misinformed. I was mistaught. I was given bad information and hmm. practiced for hours and hours and hours. And a lot of those, um, the miss, the misinformation, it still exists to this day. The tennis sure. teaching profession, I mean, tennis is great, but it's, it, it is a very unregulated profession, even to the point right. where you use the words strongly fraudulent criminal. I mean, I just, I get emotional. I just think about how poorly people are taught. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the, that's the fuel behind the great base and giving out free content. So mm-hmm. many young players, beginning players at the adult level. Um, it's really witchcraft. Um, right. Braden's our number one mentor. May 10th, 1976, Sports Illustrated, an article, Tennis is in the Stone Ages. And in many ways, it still is. Uh, but we yeah. can get into that. And that's certainly, um, you know, technique is first. And technique is, is uh, really, um, it's just amazing how it just goes in circles. Two plus two equals whatever you want it to be. But technique, we always say technique equals, equals tactics. Well, so... You start teaching someone how to hit a ball or even, you know, and I think it's great. You have a website just for doubles. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can tell by just someone's ready position that they're not going to be a great doubles player. It's a pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah. I see um, when I play tournaments or or leagues, like we had uh, a tournament this past weekend in in Waco and I'll go out and watch the, um, you know, three Oh, three, five. I mean, all the way up to even four five and sometimes even five Oh players. Uh, I'll see a doubles match and I'll see four different like forehand techniques or serve techniques. And, and some of them are just totally out of whack and, and confusing. And it, it is, um, yeah, I, I guess kind of strange that, uh, you know, we've had so long to, to try to, as an industry, improve our teaching methodologies. Um, and you said when you started playing a little bit more, you were given a lot of bad advice. Um, what was, what was the worst advice you were given? Wow. <laughs> Do you remember a specific uh, one? Technical standpoint. Um, I mean, I could just rattle off 20 points, boom, boom, boom. Um, 
Or maybe pick three. Come over the ball. Arch your back. Toss high for more time. Uh, snap down on the serve. Um, stay down on your ground strokes. Um, just over and over again, there's just so many myths. Grips are so poorly taught. Mm. Um, back in the day, um, I can remember reading Bud Collins's Tennis Digest. And the big emphasis was one grip. It made, it made sense, just one grip, one grip for everything. Of course, that was back when three of the four grand slams were on grass. And most players just learn to play by hitting against the backboard. Backboards are built straight up and down. Ideally, right. they slope at a 15-degree angle. And it's very conducive to having a continental grip. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest myths in tennis. Uh, the top players don't say what they do or do what they say. And, you know, so I, I think here in the U.S. where Jose Aguirre has, so, has had so much to do with the USTA, it's almost a continental grip. Mm -hmm. uh, society... It just expects former players to be able to be teachers. But just because right. someone can play the saxophone doesn't mean they can teach you how to play the saxophone. Right. And so, yeah, grips. Um, you know, we tell people, I was recently in Boca Raton for a weekend with Andy Fitzell and, and just driving around. And I said, if someone had just told me this, and we're just, you know, we went by some tennis centers where I – hit a bunch of tennis balls over and over and over again, spent hours and hours, for example, on a wall, you really, really practicing inefficient movements. Mm -hmm. And it's still, um, you know, I've gone to so many tournaments with junior tennis players and um, with, I can remember, for example, my youngest son, Connor, he's playing college tennis and, you know, I said, well, I'm going to watch the clinic first and I'll come in and, you know, there are others, there's a clinic going on and there's six courts here and there's six courts in the back. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the college, you know, there'll be a, a stadium in the middle. There's six courts on one side, six courts in the other. Well, I'm going to watch the, the junior program first and then I'll, well, no, I actually in college tennis, you watch the doubles and then they start the singles match, but then I'm going to go watch the junior. Right. Clinic. It's been a lot of time. I think that's something that really needs to happen in our country around the world as well as, there needs to be people that are in a position to police, um, regulate tennis teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, the USTA does it with umpires, you know, where they experts, they have four or five, six people who are on the staff and they go and evaluate the performance of umpires. And that's how they progress and get to go to the US Open. Right. Uh, but, you know, Florida, for example, is a land of the car trunk pro. You know, the discount hunter, hunter <laughs> lessons are way, way too expensive. That's another side of it. But um, all you need is a ball hopper and an ego and you're good to go. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So what about, uh, so let's dive into the grip a little more. You said, uh, one thing you said is the wall should be built at a 15 degree angle. Uh, say more about that. Why is that? Well, what happens is the players open the racket face, the continental grip opens the racket face at a 45 degree angle. You get that number and you turn the racket eight times, that's 360 degrees. 360 divided by eight is 45. Mm -hmm. uh, years ago, there was a, a teaching device called the ball back. It was Stan Smith's name of it, Stan Smith ball back. And so if the, if the wall is tilted back, then you can come and actually volley with a vertical racket face. Research and practice are so far removed in tennis. When the ball is below the level of the net and someone's hitting a deep volley, 
Mm-hmm. Back of the face is open less than 10 degrees. So then to have kids be told continental grip, elbow in, um, have the racket face open, and then cut downward, chip your volley. Uh, that's one of the reasons that players don't go to the net. Now you're hard pressed. Mm-hmm. You go to a weekend tournament, you don't even see people volley. You know, you can go okay. to a 12 and under tournament. You know, I, I know with your emphasis to uh, improve the game of doubles, people are playing one up, one back. We do know that beginners, they should go, when they go to the net, they go to lose at a faster rate. Right. Like, so they stay back. And now all the way to college tennis, division oh, one. Oh, yeah, level. definitely. On the men's side, people are playing one up, one back. Yeah, I think most of them are, um, even for a lot of players, if they do win a higher percentage of points at the net, they're still less comfortable there. So they still don't want to go there, even though uh, sometimes it can be yeah. a better win percentage. But um, you mentioned the degree of the racket. So you're saying if somebody hits me a ball and it dips below the net, my racket face is 10% open. 10 degrees, right? less than 10 degrees. 10 degrees. I'm um, sorry. Yeah. The ball comes out of a ball machine at 30 miles an hour mm-hmm. and you change the angle of the racket face by one degree, ball goes six feet further. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot more math to throw into that equation, but uh, okay. most of the time when people miss a volley, it's because the racket face is open when they miss a miss a volley long. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So I was gonna, we were going to talk about volley technique later, but let, let's do it now. Um, yeah. So, so what are, uh, most of the listeners are USTA 3035 up to maybe four or five level. Uh, what are some of the other common mistakes you see with volley technique? Well, in doubles, players will favor their forehand volley. When a ball is coming right at someone, you have much more range of motion with a backhand volley when the ball comes right to you. So we'll say, okay, put the racket, put the racket in your midsection and just go forward. Mm-hmm. It's not an ideal volley where your right arm is not extended where you're hitting a one-handed backhand volley. Mm-hmm. But we see people do that all the time. Ball's coming right at them and they, they, they favor their forehand volley. Mm-hmm. Um, with being, having to be told that there's no time to change grips. Uh, Dennis Vanderman used to do a great job. You know, he would say, what takes more time to change your grip or not change your grip? It takes the same amount of time. Now, at a real high level, once someone organizes their feet, say from the service line in, they should they should be in a composite grip, which used to be called the Australian grip. So you just take the, the reference point, the base knuckle, the heat of the index finger and the heel pad, and it's in between the second and third panel. The second panel, if you just start at the top and go to the right, as for right-handed, the second panel is a continental panel. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the airlines where you have continental and eastern, western. But um, and then when you – obviously, when you hit an overhead, the ball is in the, in the air because it's up as a lob. You have more time to change to a continental. When the ball goes to the backhand side – whether you have a one-handed handed volley or a two-handed backhand volley, definitely an emphasis on the one-hander. But you, you just have to change your grip this much, but you want to – it's like you have a chest pass in basketball and you push your hands out. But not yeah. only are you changing your grip, you want to change your arm. The, the grip determines the angle of the racket face. The angle of the racket face determines the angle of the racket path. And you know, it's just amazing how much downplay people have on volleys. Now, yeah. teaching pros, for the most part, that's how they, that's how they hit all day. And right. They're taking speed off the shot, and they they feel have they they have great control, and they're teaching by feel, and they they're, mm-hmm. they're telling their students, 
well, this is how I volley. Well, that's how you volley in a, in a tennis lesson, taking speed off the ball. And actually, underspin initially bounces higher than topspin. What makes a ball bounce high is trajectory. So when a teaching pro is hitting, many times they'll actually hit a ball with underspin, so it sets up for their student, and they're mm-hmm. actually slowing the racket down. And, you know, and anytime you, you open the angle of the racket face, you have to change. There's a lot of math. You have to change the angle of the racket path, but then slow the racket down. I think those two words, when you, you think about people making changes, where do they change the face or do they change the path? So what they really should do is change the face, get the racket face close to vertical, and then they can go fast and forward. But because the racket face is open, what they do is they change the path of the racket. So most people go down on volleys. So that's, that's why I'm seeing uh, so many people have their volleys kind of float up and they they don't understand why it's, it's kind of, they're kind of popping up their volleys for the other. Yeah, team. An underspin backhand is called the slice. We, we say the underspin drive. We know there's times, say for example, mm-hmm. it becomes an emergency shot where you're absorbing pace and taking the ball out of the corner defensively, just trying to get the ball back. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the underspin backhand, and that's, you think about someone like a Stefan Edberg um, or even going way back to Rosewell, Rosewell's famous underspin backhand. And that's our work from Braden is the racket face was never tilted more than uh, 10 degrees. Basically, his racket face was about seven degrees. So mm-hmm. fan, it's a fun story with tennis history, Pancho Gonzalez. You know, uh, what what slices? Roosevelt didn't hit a slice back in. He drove it. He, he was, you know, and people hit a, the highest level mm-hmm. players. They're really, really hitting a penetrating approach shot. Right. It's almost like a golfer. You know, they need a two iron and they're taking it a nine iron or a wedge out of their bag. They've got the, the wrong pitch with a racket face. Hmm. So, so that's interesting. So um, you're saying that they, a lot of the best volleyers may not have underspin on their volleys. Is that right? Well, there's a famous tape with Brian Gottfried that Braid made years ago. And Gottfried was number three American. Mm-hmm. Great player, hard, hard worker. And he was asked, he said, well, I, first I drive, I go forward to put stick on the volley, which means you get hit by a stick. And then they turn the racket underneath. By the time you feel the hit, the ball is approximately seven to 11 feet away from you. It takes three, the ball's on its strings three to six milliseconds. To register the hit takes about 70 milliseconds. So mm-hmm. I, again, by the time you feel the hit, it's really aftershock. So that's where mm-hmm. it's a little bit dangerous. We know teaching as both a science and an art, but it's, it's more harmful and helpful than tell someone will feel, you know, it used to be peel the orange or um, mm-hmm. let yourself massage the ball, come around the side of the ball. And so one person, one player uh, I watched that came to mind for me is Jamie Murray. So when, when you watch him hit his volleys and I don't know if he, he has uh, the best volley technique or not, I have no idea, but he, he almost, it seems like he's putting topspin on a lot of his volleys. Uh, and he has the racket face, like you said, like pretty closed, um, probably close to vertical. Well, Louis Caillé, uh, people can get online. And uh, Louis, a French-Canadian, mm-hmm. uh, has been with the LTA for a long time. When he was with Canada, he ran what was called the action method. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Jamie, you get so close to the net. You know, it's yeah, amazing how it. courageous he is as far as going forward. Um, with, I do think that's something when you're watching, 
the very best players in the world, how spontaneous they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the speed of the game and how they react. Um, so, uh, but I think it's for developmental players is to, it's, it's more like turning the clock back and, you know, how did Jamie Murray play when he was younger? You know, how did okay. he fall yeah. um, to get right. to the, the level he's in? But I think um, at that level, it's so much with a serve, uh, the point, it's almost like the point's over before it starts. Uh, but right. I think the volley to look at is, um, like say the Bryan brothers, the Bryan brothers were really influenced by Braden as well. Kathy mm-hmm. Blake, their mother is a really good tennis player. Um, Wayne used to take them to, uh, Vic's tennis college. We spent a lot of time, the, the ten, Vic, Vic's library is now owned by the tennis channel, but within that library, there's film of Vic working with Brian brothers mm-hmm. and, um, Bob Bryan one time said in the tennis channel for an hour and a half after school every day, our, our mom worked with us on strokes. But when you watch what the Bryan brothers do, um, you know, once it's match play, it's, it's so high speed. And I think what, what players that are coming up need to do is watch how they hit their first volley. Mm. Watch how they okay. first hit their first volley. Because when you get all four players of it to that high level doubles. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, it's very, very athletic. <laughs> But those were the, you know, basics turned into instincts. That's where, like a Jamie Murray asking about his volley, you're going to see him all day long volleying like this. You know, he's not going to be doing this on the forehand side. Right. Um, it's amazing at a high level how many more backhand volleys the players hit because they're going right at the body. The, high, the point ends three ways. Well, it ends as a winner, a plus plus, or an unforced error, minus minus, or a forced error, minus F. And at the highest level of doubles, almost every point ends as a minus F. And they're not not going around them. They're not going over them. It's just like bulldozer tennis. They're going right through the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody here is, you know, to solve the the riddle, go go up the middle. Mm -hmm. Right. So for that, um, it's funny. That's one thing I I teach a lot of the audience is to typically attack the backhand volley because most players are so much more comfortable with their forehand volley. Um, myself included, you know, if, if you hit me a hundred forehand volleys, I'll make, I don't know what the percentage is, but definitely more than a hundred backhand volleys. Um, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I make the mistake of, you know, today's tennis, people are not volleying continental on both sides. Years ago, that was the case. So uh, the forehand volley was the weaker volley years ago, but now, I mean, look at Nadal, He's much better on the forehand volley. Now, he's, he volleys so well because he's so athletic. He closes in, but he has so much downplay on the backhand volley. Today, you do see most kids, most players with a composite grip on the forehand, but they also volley with a composite grip on the backhand. There's a lot more drawbacks because it's an almost continental grip. The grip's not far enough over, so the, the angle the racket face is, is open. If you don't change your grip, you have to change your wrist. So you see a lot of players trying to do this because they don't have a very right. good grip. Now you go to a college tennis match, division one. So there's 12 players on the court and then you just take a survey and uh, you're hard pressed to, to just have one player of the 12 have a really good backhand volley where they have a backhand grip and they just have to change their grip this much. I mean, mm-hmm. um, they, you've just got to be able to drive it going forward. Do you have a racket laying around? Can you show us some of the grip on the video? Um, no, there's not a racket in here. You don't? 
Okay. Well, we'll, uh, what I'll do is I'll email you after the show and um, get a video from you. I'm sure you have like a YouTube video or something on grips. Um, yeah. We can, um, uh, we'll, we'll find something and link to some resources because uh, this seems pretty important for, for the volley technique. Yeah, just the, yeah, the racket's in octagon. I apologize. I don't have a racket in the room, but no, it's okay. The, um, you, people could sit in a chair for five minutes. That's another braidism for five minutes a day, just and just for, for your first five, 10 days. And, you know, like we tell kids all the time, you go back, you're riding in the car with your parents back home after your tennis training session is actually just practice changing grips. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, anything you're going to be going good at, it has to be re- rehearsed over and over and over again. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Cool. So, so we're going to, yeah, we'll link to more of that, um, in the show notes and I'll chat with you after the show about that, um, about some good resources for that. Uh, but let's dive into, um, some more double strategy. So, uh, I already heard you touch on, you know, the pros, they're controlling the middle of the court. They're mostly forcing errors. That's typically how a point ends. Um, how should a, three Oh to four five level doubles player think about double strategy overall. How would you uh, coach them? Well, it's a big difference between a three Oh and a four five, as you know. So let's um, go through, start with three Oh then. You know, if I just, I'll say this is that we've worked with players um, say they are three, five. And if they want to go tr- be trained like a junior, well, a year later, you know, they're definitely going to be closer to a four five. Mm-hmm. And then they have there's less people to play with. For years, I used to go to Atlanta, and mm-hmm. Atlanta is, is it's amazing how much tennis there was played. Because um, it's interesting, like say here in Florida, what happens? There's a golf course built, and then there's luxury homes and townhouses, and there's a small mm-hmm. tennis center. Yeah. And many parts of Florida, you need to have a man the facility needs to be uh, supervised. Mm-hmm. You have to man the facility because there's clay courts. But in Atlanta, there's just one subdivision after another subdivision that has really a nice set of hard courts, four, six, eight. Mm-hmm. And if you say you have two right-handed players play 3-0 and they want to win, you know, you make one stand to the outside of the court where they just hit all forehands and one stands in the middle and they all hit, they all hit forehands. And you say, okay. And, yeah, I'll say, I say ladies because men, they don't even take lessons. It's a macho male ego. It's like years ago before, <laughs> before we had GPS and the man would never stop the car and ask for directions. Right. The woman would ask for directions. <laughs> so the men aren't even taking lessons, you know, at night they're banging balls and having a beer, but this is club tennis. So you put the one right-handed lady here and the one right-handed lady here, they're at the baseline. And you say, never go to the net. Mm-hmm. I would serve you tell them put the rack in the pizza position just toss tap aim right to the middle of the court and Shepard Mead's book he wrote a famous book in the 50s how to succeed in business without really trying he wrote a book um, lots of tennis books here behind me how to succeed in tennis without really trying so you take the role of the spoiler mm-hmm. uh, you don't go to the net because you can't hit an overhead you don't go to the net because you can't hit a volley so you just <laughs> stay back and then you you know the, the, the players just move this way hitting forehands there, there's no forehand backhand. It's just I'm covering okay. the court this way. I'm covering the court this way, and you can get some people mad at you. But that's if you really you say, "Lady, do you want to win?" This yeah. Do you want to win or do you want to get better? <laughs> you know, a lot of times the club pro is 
you know, they're just listening to people's social agenda. They're standing at the net post. Sure. I mean, people have been in an indoor club where the court's very expensive and get myself in trouble with the gals again that four women will come out and they just stand at the net post chatting. <laughs> it's a very expensive indoor court. Um, so, you know, basically to teach really good doubles, you say, okay, we're going to play and we're going to lose the right way. If we mm -hmm. lose the right way, we're eventually going to win. For 10 years. Yeah, so I think the audience is more interested in that. <laughs> for 10 years. Uh, I, I hope at charge, least. <laughs> for 10 years, I was in charge of a, a junior college tennis team. Um, it's one of those things where the rules much different than the NCAs. It's a municipality in Tampa, Hillsborough Community College. There's 28 courts. And there was, with gender equity, there was no men's team. There's just mm -hmm. a women's team. And. You know, we said, well, you're going to have a palm down serve or you're not going to play. We're not going to let anybody play with a palm up serve. And mm -hmm. we're going to make everyone go to the net. You know, and you're, you're here for two years. If we're going to lose, we're going to lose the right way. Right. And um, what happened, Chad Burial, who's now at St. Leo, he won a national championship when he was working with us. He was with us for five years. He told me that not one player left the program and they were, they trained and they played with us or on a junior college team. Many of them had scholarships afterwards to play a third and fourth year. Not one of them was told to continue to go to the net. Toughest thing in tennis at every level now is if you're a serving volley doubles player is how to find a partner who serves and volleys. Mm. Nancy Ritchie was a great player and she was more comfortable coming in behind a, an approach shot. So Billie Jean King had won 21 or she won 21 titles at Wimbledon. But when she played with uh, Nancy Ritchie, she knew Nancy was more comfortable coming in um, off the approach out. So they came in this way. They, you know, Billy would stay back and they would both come in this way. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I was talking to one of my former students from 40 years ago, uh, Mike Custer. He ran a program where for adults and said, you're not going to play for the first year. And, you know, it really takes some time and teach people even – um, long before there was the red ball and the orange ball, they just take a Nerf ball and say, okay, we're going to play mini tennis. We're going to play touch tennis, really. Because yeah. if you're just playing with a regular ball. And, you know, just to come into that, because most adult tennis players are afraid of the net. They have right. a fear, fear of being hit, a greater fear of looking bad. You know, tennis, yeah. is, <laughs> tennis is so difficult for an entry-level adult. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, Vic Braden used to say that adult tennis players, I could quote Vic all day, is they buy the clothes and they wear them to the grocery store. Because, <laughs> you know, they bought the outfit, they took a few lessons. Uh, we, we don't teach people how to practice together. I think of Tom Stowe, who was at the Berkeley Tennis Club, who mentored Don Budge, who mentored Dennis Vandermeer, a great player and a great teacher. At his club, everybody would have a basket of balls and people would be feeding balls to each other. Mm -hmm. Years ago, people only took a private lesson. There weren't programs. There weren't clinics. There clinics, weren't. Yeah. It was, you just took a private lesson. Um, and then, you know, you need to go out and hit the backboard. And, but mini tennis was huge. Just to go out and play tap tennis, just touch the ball. Um, right. So what are some common mistakes you see for this, let's say three, five uh, level player um, as far as double strategies? It sounds like going to the net. Uh, is a big one. Um, well, if people are even, if they were just taught well on a green light point from Bill Jacobson, 
um, when you're serving or even when you're returning, mm-hmm. say when you're up or you're down, you're up 40 love. If every 12 year old knew this, well, I'm up 40 love. The math is on my side to take a chance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hit a body serve. Say I'm playing singles. I'm going to hit a body serve straight ahead. So the return comes back straight ahead. Mm-hmm. Or it's doubles. I'm just going to aim to the middle of the box because I want to get my serve in. Mm-hmm. I want to get my serve in. Um, Braden, he was at Toledo. And he was an assistant basketball coach. But he was assigned to teach tennis. And he took yeah. the basketball players. He said, just put a racket like this, big, tall athletes, toss, tap, and charge the net. And the goal is really to be a wall at the net. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the scoring system really confuses people. If you go to the net and you win two out of three points, that turns into four out of six, eight out of 12. So you learn by making mistakes. When you are at the net, regardless of what level is you're forcing, you're dictating the point. Now, what mm-hmm. does happen, say, say 55 and over? Sure. Maybe it's 45 and over, but 55 and over is that you can't close in as much because the you know, probably the most difficult movement is to go back for an overhead. Yeah. So teams become so easy to lob. And you, we, we know that, you know, club players will say, okay, I'll, uh, you take my side, I'll cover my side, you cover your side, or, you know, I'll cover up at the net. Um, But all you have to do is then chart. But I think also then is application is how to teach, you know, if someone's teaching, you know, club tennis, social tennis, Okay, we're going to feed the ball in and play the point out. But every time I feed the ball, I'm going to feed it as a lob. All four mm-hmm. players back, I feed it as a lob, play the overhead, and I play it out. They have, you, you have to hit overheads. If, um, you know, we have junior tennis players. We force people. You have, if you're with us. If we're training you, and you don't go to the net and practice. You don't, you don't practice. I mean, it's like, no, you don't, you're, you're not going to serve in volley. So, no, go, go sit down. Now, if we're working with players, you know, Dave Secker, who – was on one of our podcasts, somebody who's studied our content mm-hmm. um, with Simon Urshaw. They're doing a great job at NC State. Simon's the head coach and David's the assistant coach. And yeah. I think they've gone from 160 to six. And, you know, they're taking, they're meeting players that are 18 years old and they're going, okay, at least play two bounce doubles. You know, we like to train where it says one bounce doubles and everybody crashes the net. The only time the ball bounces is for the return. And you can do sort of things where, okay, no poaching. One bounce doubles, no poaching, everybody comes in. And you can do it initially where you serve underhand. You can get six people playing tennis like that, three, three against three, and you rotate very quickly and you chart it. People are playing more tennis with six people on a court than four. But there, you have to really calculate or chart, do your homework on how many net appearances. If people only come to the yeah. net every other month, they're not going to be confident. So this, this sounds like a good game that people can try if they are uncomfortable uh, going to the net, this one no, or two we, bounce doubles, right? So we tell, we tell, we, we've had a Facebook post for over, over 10 years. We put up something every day and um, a mission or a vision would be if teaching pros would say, all right, everybody play 10 minutes mm-hmm. uh, one bounce doubles. You know, my son played on the tour for a while. I get to be touring in the world. I said, why did the end of your practice where the one player says, you're play you good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I go, Hey, why don't you just play one game each of ghost doubles? 
the one-on-one doubles. Ed Kras has done a very good job with the one-on-one doubles where, you know, I really think there should be a tennis line all the way down the middle of the court. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I was a college coach, I would say, we're going to have a deuce court tournament. We're going to have an ad court tournament and you have to serve and volley um, with. Um, yeah. If you set the the directives, you can have some fun doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Those sound like some good games. So that, that's one I, I tell people to play a lot is this cross court doubles points. Um, Cause if you can win that cross court rally, then the odds of you winning the match go way up. Uh, and then this one bounce double sounds like a good one. So that, to clarify for the listeners, um, that means you serve, the ball bounces, they hit the return, and the ball is not allowed to bounce again for the rest of the point. Yeah. If know, it like does with, bounce on your side, you lose the point. Is that how you play it? Yeah. With okay. little kid tennis in the U.S., you know, mm-hmm. with red ball tennis, um, you can do it at a really young age. If the ball bounces the second time, mm-hmm. you lose the point. You lose the point. Yeah. So you can do one bounce or two bounce. Okay. That's a great, uh, a great game for people to try. So let's, uh, let's move on to return strategy. So how do you think about, um, it sounds like you're a fan of the serve and volley on the serving side. Uh, how do you think about return strategy for, um, a three, five level player? Well, it comes back to technique. Okay. Technique where I said, you can look at someone in the ready position and if they're waiting today, which is very common, mm-hmm. is they wait with an extreme grip. So I'm right-handed and the rackets, I'm, I'm waiting and I'm in this position. I tell people all the time, why don't you watch Djokovic's ready position? Mm-hmm. So a Vandermeer line, the interrelationship of strokes, the interrelationship of spins. So if someone has a racket in a center position, the ready position for righty turning to the right, it's a forehand volley. Back the ready position, you turn for volley. The, you continue the turn, and then you have the backswing. Okay. Dennis Vander, what he same. used to do in doubles clinics is that he'd spend some time on the throwing motion and teach the serve, and then he would teach the volley, and he'd say, "Let's play doubles. Let's mm-hmm. play doubles." And that it comes back to, you know, even having the approach shot in club tennis. They say, "Okay, there's no poaching for now," and the return of serve is going to be like a volley. It's like a volley with an added follow through. So anytime you think of returns, you have to think of short, compact. The ball is mm-hmm. going to be faster and faster. The best players in the history of the game have spent obviously hours on a ball on a on a backboard. Agassi's mm-hmm. a little bit different because he had that souped up ball machine feeding him balls. But you really have to have a very short, compact motion. So you have the option, like Roger Federer turns in his racket. We say like a wall to the ball. So that's where Roger, he has the skills where while Rinka and, and, and the Fed, uh, they're not, not even playing doubles as single specialists. Right. And then they rock up and they win the gold medal at the Olympics. That's because mm-hmm. they have the skills. One year, Pete Sampras, uh, Tom Gullickson used him to play doubles and he had played doubles in years and years. And, uh, but first of all, he had a great serve, but he had the skills. He had yeah. the skill to play doubles. Um, yeah. He had all the tools. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's say so, – so one thing a lot of people ask, um, let's stick with that 3-5 player. Um, I get emails from people saying, I'm, I'm having trouble uh, holding my serve in doubles. What should I do? 
well, we always say, you know, you need two things to be a serve volley. You need a serve and you need a, need a volley, but to hold serve, you get a high, you have to get a high percentage of serves in. Okay. You, like say a three O player to me is, is a beginning player, just like a young junior player, mm-hmm. right-handed players in the deuce court, almost every second serve goes out wide to in most likely 85% of players they're playing against a righty. Why does it go? Again, it's technical reasons. The brains are fit the the setting head of the head. So players sneak a peek. They, they shift their head to see the flyaway ball before they've Mm -hmm. even hit it. And then the head is inch for inch heaviest part of the body. So then the trunk starts to go because I mean, biomechanics used to say if, if the neck bones connected to the backbone, the backbone's connected to the hip bone. So the head, the body shifts like this, the body's the leader. So they can't direct their serve. So mm-hmm. they, they really need to understand the serve. So they um, look too quick. They, they look to see where it's going. Too yeah, fast. no, they definitely sneak a peek. Oh, and, okay. But also too, is that the, the serve in the overhead when you hit a tennis ball, you're blind to your target. You know, you're on when, no matter what shot it is, it's a forehand volley. You're not looking at your target. It's a overhead. You're not looking at your target, but when you hit an overhead, which is an abbreviated serve. So overhead is the serves. Well, you swing away from your target and it's very difficult to conceptualize, but right. three old players don't do that. Young beginning players, junior adult, they don't do that. They swing towards their target. Mm-hmm. And that's where 85% of players have some version of palm up. So I think of Peter Burwash, he used to teach, you know, the Ilya Nastasi backfire. He'd have people turn their back to the net and serve this way. So then they have their <laughs> arm loose and they'd be doing that with a continental grip. Vandermeer okay. had a great drill and we actually have kids do it on a regular basis. We just call it the Vandermeer where you have kids serve and they bring the racket behind their back like this. Hmm. Um, and now they get their, they have the edge of the racket going this way and they're learning to hit a spin serve. Um, yeah. That's a big difference. When, when someone becomes a four or five player, that's that actually years ago, years and years ago, you had to go through a clinic to be verified um, to be a raider. Now you self rate. But in the fine print years ago, the description was once you become a four or five player, then you can hit spin on your serve. The, mm-hmm. the players below that, they're basically hitting underspin serves. They're just guiding their serve when they're in the, in the box. And again, Braden, hundred quotes from Braden, it's like throwing up a grenade and running underneath it. You know, if you, if you can't serve and your you know, your serve is, you know, just a helium ball, it is going so slow over the net. You know, you're not going to run in behind it. So you really mm-hmm. have to do due diligence. But for the most part, get myself in trouble. But the tennis teaching industry in this country, it's more service based than it is education based. Right. You know, for, for coming back to my former student, we're, you're going to take lessons for a year before you play. You know, there's really no instant tennis. Someone doesn't take piano lessons and then go to the recital. Yeah. But that's how tennis is taught pretty much at the club level. It's, let's make it social. And um, I used to do these clinics for all American sports back in the 70s where it was supposed to be a wine and cheese round robin. But I've been coaching all day. I made a wine and cheese with a few beers for these adult campers. Uh-huh. You know, we got we got to, we got to practice a little bit of practice. Um, you know, just having that edge go up like this, and then turning the racket. You got to be able to hit spin on the serve. So that's the difference in your mind between that that four zero to four five. 
um, as far as holding serve. They need to get the technique right and hit a little more spin. Yeah, no, so I, I mean, definitely able to. It's what you can do with the ball. One year in Texas, I yeah. was in Texas for 10 years in a group of men. You know, they were, I believe they were a group of four or five men. It might have been four O's. I think it was four or five. And they asked us uh, um, to go through training for nationals. And at that time, Craig Tyler was very well known in tennis. Um, he was a student of ours for a long time. I mean, he was, I think that's unfair. He's a student, a student assistant. He was there seven years. And he got to the point where he could replicate my skills to a certain level, but then he had his own set of skills. And I can remember him uh, doing body composition and we, okay, guys, we're going to get all, we got to get on the fat farm. So we really went through fitness. So the group of guys went out, I think it was in Arizona and it was nationals and they had people walking around in an official official as officials and three of them were told that they were sandbagging, that they, hey, you guys aren't four fives, you guys are five O's. So that's another thing too. I mean, I've run one of workout sessions where just pump out a lot of balls. I don't think a lot of people know I can do that. Is that I, can, I have some feeding techniques I've learned over the years and we can pump out some balls very quickly. And we're going to, uh, we used to call it, you know, want to work out stress buster. Um, and with, you know, we would have people come based on their fitness level. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that ties into it. So movement. Um, so yeah, that has another, so you that's took, not, just, it's not just stroke production. Yeah. So you took this group of, of four O or four five players. And in a few months before nationals, you had them get to nationals improve so much that the refs at nationals. Yeah. So no, it, was, it was more like six months. It was more six like six months. months. Okay. Okay. The thing was, it was okay. Guys, we practiced before school. So this was before mm -hmm. kids were homeschooling. We practiced before school. So you can meet us really early hours in the morning, then go off to your, your job. And then, uh, you can come every afternoon. You can just okay. join in with the juniors, train like a junior. Oh, and then interesting. You know, train okay. on the weekends. And, you know, okay. they had family commitments and this and this. It wasn't like they could sure. come every time. But um, they're playing you know, you, several days a week. That, yeah, but that doesn't happen with adult tennis where, okay, let's, sure. you know, we, we, we did body fat. You know, we, that's where we <laughs> highly, uh, you know, he got a degree in kinesiology and, yeah. you know, um, I bought the equipment and it's like, okay, we'll see uh kind of shape you guys. Are right. <laughs> so beer, beer, beer is liquid bread. And right. um, yeah, so a lot, a lot of, that's a good story. Are a little overweight. So um, a couple other questions uh, and then I want to get into some of the rapid fire stuff. Um, how have you, you've been coaching a long time. Um, how have you seen doubles change over the years? Well, um, one, one thing that hasn't changed is the myth on who plays where, say in mixed troubles, mixed doubles, mm -hmm. the, the deuce court player takes more returns, or I should say, let me say it correctly, they do take more returns. The deuce yeah. court player, if you chart, they play more balls. So you and I are playing doubles and we play uh, five points. You're in the deuce court, I'm in the ad court. So you've played three, I've played two. Now when we return again, you're taking return number four and I'm taking, I'm still at return number two. Right. Plus 85% of players are right-handed. 85% of players have been mistaught to hit a volley with an open racket face that faces the deuce court. 
the 85% could rule that many players are looking to run around their backhand, right-handed players, 85%. And that 85% of the time they're running around, they're trying to avoid a backhand and hit a forehand like this. And they're pulling horizontally. They're a little bit late. They don't get the racket underneath. And what happens in baseball, if a kid can't catch, they put him in right field. Mm-hmm. Or the kid who's picking their nose or picking dandelions, they put him in right field. And so the myth in tennis is the better player should play the ad court, but the deuce court determines whether you're at in or at out. Like the other day, Austin Krychek is talking to his dad this morning. So they get to Cincinnati. He was just in the Olympics. I mean, he was, he's an NCAA doubles champion, gets along with everybody. He he can play both the right side and the left side. Deuce and ad. So he's playing with Stevie Johnson, who's the most decorated college tennis player. Right. And, I mean, Stevie's hitting, talking about 3-5, he's in a 3-5 backhand. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's running around, and that was his first choice, and he leaves the court so exposed. The mm-hmm. next thing is he's hitting these 3-5 lobs, and then he just started to try to punch it. And, I mean, and again, great tennis player, but, you know, he doesn't hit a backhand very well. Doesn't really have a backhand, yeah. <laughs> you know, if he was playing Sampras in his day, you think, well, Sampras could serve the backhand and volley the backhand. Stevie Johnson's growing up in an era where he's not playing against people who can serve to the backhand and volley the backhand. He's playing against people who don't even volley. So, I mean, um, it's a set point and Stevie takes the return. I'm going, you gotta be kidding me. Well, you know, so there's things that remain the same. A tennis player should learn to play both sides. Um, by modified doubles where you play systematically, um, so the I formation, you know, mm-hmm. where you just, you serve the middle, the serve the rackets are, you can say the rackets are bigger, the rackets are more powerful, um, and therefore you know, they serve straight ahead. You know, Gonzalez was one of the first players to do that. He came right in, stood by the center hash mark, and yeah. he gave a better lineman as a righty to serve the backhand, and then you just veer off this way. But uh, Tyriac with Vilas, you know, he's given a lot of credit for the I formation where he was older in his early forties, Vilas is in his early twenties mm-hmm. and Vilas, he'd, he'd have Vilas at the net and he'd have him down like in the sprinter's position. And he's got his hand signals. He's going to go right or is he going to go left? So mm-hmm. that's definitely something that's happened. Um, but you know, again, I don't want to pick on like a John Isner or Sam query. Um, they play one up one back doubles. I mean, they're both giants and they have giant right. circles yeah. and, I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, Alex <laughs> Damajan uh, is a very good player. He won so many junior tournaments. He did well in college tennis. And he, like like an Isner, a query, big tall guy. I was at the NCAs and I was sitting next to Dick Gould, who I don't really know that well, but certainly I know him all the years. You see someone for a few minutes, start talking to him. And I said, yeah, Virginia's got a guy, you know, he's playing three doubles. He's He's close to seven feet tall. He's going to be served and staying back. And I forgot I had taught, told him that. Now, mm-hmm. Gould won 17 national championships. You know, I get this thump and he goes, you're right. I can't believe it. That guy is serving and staying back. <laughs> and here's one of the, my uh, fun story. One of my favorite stories is Steve Denton, who we were flattered. He, he hired us to teach him to teach tennis. You know, he was number mm-hmm. two in the world in doubles, 11 in singles. And he was playing against Agassiz and Crickstein. And um, Agassiz's serving, he talks the ball way over his head. He serves, stays back. It's the beginning of the match. 
Steve Jen just catches the ball and goes, really? Like you're really going to serve and stay back? Um, I think with the Bryans having retired, I mean, serve and volley doubles is becoming extinct. There's so many lost arts. Mm-hmm. Um, tennis is in a crisis. I mean, um, because people want to win. They want to win at every level. And we know now it's not muscle memory, it's brain memory. If someone's programmed to stay back. If they don't start from the get-go going to the net, right. they won't have the instincts. Yeah. In club tennis, you know, I think recreational tennis and club and competitive tennis, um, yeah, fair enough. You can say, okay, you know, on your second serve, you want to stay back. But the very first ball, you got to come in. Um, one thing I'd want to share with your listeners is, have you ever heard the tr- of the triangle in, in, in doubles to run the triangle, one up, one back? I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, but not by that term. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. Um, is teams playing one up, one back. Mm-hmm. Typically, in you know, the husband-wife doubles, and what do you do if your your partner can't play? Well, you get a new partner. Well, what if it's what if it's my husband? So <laughs> in the courting stage, you know, the the, the husband, um, the marriage is going on and he, the macho male ego, he'd like to have the woman stand outside the court and he could cover the whole court. So it's like guard your alley. When someone says guard your alley, that means they don't know how to play. Right. And you know, then you got the court hog covering the whole court. But when you're playing the triangle, you serve. Then the person at the net, they try to poach. So their ball, their return goes cross court. They go towards the net strap and they don't quite get to the ball. But then as the ball goes back to your partner who's staying back, you recover and you go to the hot seat. Vander used to call it the hot seat. Is you plug up the middle. In doubles, you want to concede the most difficult angle. You, you can't cover the entire court, even two players. Mm-hmm. So you, you're, you're forcing play to the outside. Mm-hmm. So now your, your partner hits the ball and you're plugging up the middle. And now the ball goes by the net person. And once it goes by the net person, you as the partner of the returner, you go forward. So your movement goes like this. It's a triangle. You try, you're, you're trying to poach. You don't quite get there. Now the ball has gone by you. So you go back. Now, once the ball goes by your opposing net person, you go forward. So it goes like this. The worst thing is someone playing doubles, club doubles. And again, I don't think that's fair to club players because now division one college tennis, you see these girls, for example, Mm-hmm. That's got to be the easiest money in, in pro tennis. And the boys, they're, they're going down fast too. You see these players, you know, UCLA and Arizona, Texas, these really good athletes. Yeah. And they're yeah. playing three, five lady doubles because they yeah. don't know where to stand. Um, mm-hmm. That's a good line. My son, my son, Connor, had. He's, he, he played pretty, played doubles pretty well. And people would say, gee, you know, you play doubles well. And he had a good, um, line to uh you know just be humble and say well it's not that i play doubles that well i just know where to stand right and i right. say i say well you could say i know where to stand and i know how to hang on to the racket i mean <laughs> if kids return to serve and they're hit waiting like this and then mm-hmm. they end up because they have this extra movement they take the distance and they go further from the baseline that's the last thing you want to do yeah. because the further you are from the baseline the more time your opposing that person has to read the return but I, I think maybe I got away from your question, but the, has doubles really changed um, with the top players don't play? 
Billie Jean King fought for, for so many causes and she's been successful with some, some of her fights, she wasn't successful. In their early age groups, boys and girls should play the same age group. And now we have less people playing competitive tennis in America. And that's, some, that's a way where the UTR has failed up at this point, that tournaments are not genderless and ageless like they should be. The UTR, girls should be able to play boys. You know, if you're a 9-0, you should be able to play. And I understand that they are doing some of that. They need to do more of that. Hmm. But she also, not only did she fight for equal prize money for women, she was really fighting for more equal prize money for doubles. Yeah. And wouldn't it be great if someone as great as Roger Federer or even Djokovic, and Djokovic would be a better player, and that'd be scary, mm -hmm. that if there was a combined ranking, if the, the money was distributed where, you know, it, it, it could be done where, well, whoever is doing, you know, like Stephen Edwards and John McEnroe, number one in both um, singles and doubles, and um, they weren't rewarded financially for that. It could it could be set up as a sure if the meetings of the minds would do that. But the the true power right, brokers right. in tennis are the people who are the best players and the best players. Um, the conversations need going in the other direction. Like where does all the money go? A doubles team, for the most part, in doubles twenty percent of the money goes to doubles, and then you got to split it. Um, so that really started back with Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors won the U.S. Open playing doubles. He won Wimbledon playing doubles. But then it was like, hey, Bor um, Bjorn Borg, as a young teenager, he played doubles well enough for Sweden when Davis Cup. But they said, mm -hmm. forget it. You know, I'm making so much money playing singles. And I think that's really bad for the game. It's unfortunate. So yeah. all the people that make decisions, um, you know, you would even think that someone like, say, or Federer, he could do the – and granted, he's older in his family, but – um, it should even be where, okay, Roger, you're 40 years old, that he could come out and still make a pretty penny. And his, doubles, his, yes. his ball striking skills that he, he shows up and, you know. There's who knows how much longer he could play if he was well, a professional doubles player, player, you know? like He doesn't want to travel the tour. Sure. He wants to, you know, maybe his kids are going to go from having a tutor to go to regular school, whatever. Yeah. But, um, and there's personal reasons, but the um, is really so sad that people love doubles. They play doubles and then they watch they're, singles. They're, it's not even for the most part. It, it has gotten a little bit better with at one time the tournament directors, they want to totally drop doubles. Yeah. Brian, Brian brothers needed to get a big pat on the back for that. Yeah. That's where they changed the scoring format where they went to no ad and then the 10 point tiebreaker. And that was where they could be, the doubles players could be on TV sometime and be on more show courts. Um, yeah. The Labor Cup, one thing that's really exciting about the Labor Cup is the scoring format. Um, mm -hmm. The, uh, But yeah, all the alphabet soup, if people could get together, uh, you know, doubles out, needs to yeah. be saved. I think it's great that you have a podcast. Um, but I don't really pigeonhole it where um, I really think that there's not that much of a difference um, between working with you know, three, five doubles and pro doubles. The other day, Stevie Johnson, for example, anytime he starts scrambling around, so he's trying to hit a forehand, he puts himself way out of position. He plays these fantastic shots, but there was one point in particular where he, he basically ends up um, running off the court, taking a step up where he's almost in the stand, yeah, scrambles, back, <laughs> scrambles back, and then he puts his arms up, beat his hand against the chest, and I'm going, <laughs> everybody loves it. He loves it. It's a great show, great theater, 
But the reason he had to do all that is he was out of position, hit the wrong shot. Right. But then, you know, then can you actually, and I think that's one of the problems too, is that it's amazing at the pro level that there's a lot of romancing. It's like in college tennis when kids are recruited Mm -hmm. that the other day I was watching Kevin Anderson. I think it was obscene really. Kevin Anderson, we watched practicing one of the hardest workers in tennis, Wimbledon finalist, Mm -hmm. US Open finalist. We're down in Boca and we've had a lot to do with people working at the Delray Beach Tennis Center. We just happened to be there to meet someone. So we're sitting on the bleachers, having a meeting, we're watching Anderson practice. And, um, you know, he's South African. And I saw where you had Jeff Kutsir as one of your guests on his program. Jeff lived mm-hmm. with us when he was a young kid. So okay. with one time, Kevin Anderson, Craig Tiley was at Illinois. So he, he leaves and then Brad Dancer's there. And I, I knew that Kevin was looking for a coach. So I just called Brad sent him an email and said, Kevin Anderson should hire Raven Clausen. Clausen spent five years with us. You know, he, he actually can teach tennis. He has information. You know, he's one of the most knowledgeable guys on the tour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but he's just a double specialist. So who's going to believe that? <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you were to say it even to a group of college coaches, all right, we're going to turn him in on who can teach a beginner. We're going to take touring pros and who could teach a beginner. So, um, Kevin and his father at that time, he's very young. They offered Klassen the job to be the coach. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, that's an idea that I was proud of is that, and, but Raven was still playing some singles, mm-hmm. but that would have been great for Kevin because he would have had a technician in his corner. He would have been great for Raven because Raven could have, uh, played doubles with such a big server. And yeah. I, I think something like that, that Kevin so close, I mean, I, I think that if he had a Raven Klassen in his corner coaching him, um, Raven played team tennis with uh, Taylor Fritz and Fritz's parents asked Raven if you would, if he would coach him. And the Raven said that he was still playing. I said, Raven, you just needed to give him some lessons, work with him one week here or three days here. Yeah. But if you watch Klassen play, he's somebody who rebuilt his game as a teenager. And, okay. um, you know, like say, for example, how he hits a backhand volley, you know, yeah. that most players, even though they're world-class, they're playing, they have so much calculation on the backhand side uh, because they just weren't grinded on it from a technical standpoint. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's a, he's a really great doubles player and fun player to watch as well. So people should definitely check him out when he's on. Yeah, he's, he's been dumped a couple of times. Uh, Rajiv Ram, who's so successful, and then um, mm-hmm. the New Zealander who played at LSU. He was in the final, Wimbledon final with Raven. Uh, help me out. Uh, anyway. He, um, Raven, Raven's, he's, he's been dropped a little bit because people are looking for someone who has a great serve, has a great serve. Yeah. I really think that's another thing too, is that they do it in pro baseball, Michael Venus, they do it great, they do it in okay, baseball. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that, um, they should have a modified racket. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. not quite for the women yet, although that should change perhaps around the corner, but, yeah. um, that would bring tennis back in tennis when um, you've got people that are, you know, hitting 135, 104 miles serves. And um, it's, 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 in some ways it's taking the tennis out of tennis. Some people yeah. oh, I take the challenge away from it, but. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I was, well, yeah. I was having a argument or argument or conversation with somebody, I guess the other day about this. And um, we were wondering like, what, what rules would we change if we did, and I think, at least for me, one is 
uh, I would take uh, Let's away on serves because I, d- I don't understand why we play Let's on serves, but the whole rest of the point, we don't redo the point if it hits the net. We just play it out. Um, but another well, one that I'll, might help. I'll say they play a let, as you know, on the men's side, why they play the let is there's so many. Because you know, they cheat. <laughs> it's a different level of cheating. The sensei was, right. that, was that was a let. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, well, there's been some. That's thought. one. And then another one would, would be uh, if they just got rid of the second serve, you know, like what would yeah, that do to, to like John Isner? I, I don't know. They, well, they did that one time with Gonzalez. Yeah, they, did. they said he just serves too well. It was a tournament in Cleveland. They said it was just a one, one serve. Uh-huh. All he got was one test. serve. And he won even easier because he had such a good second serve. With uh-huh. um, one, There's only been a couple of rule changes in the history of tennis. And one was you had to stay flat-footed. You couldn't jump. You couldn't be uncoiling on the serve. Um, uh-huh. you, know, you know, if they were to go back to that. But I really think. You know, some people even said based on your height, you know, for every six inches, you got to go back six inches, you know. Okay. Oh, that'd be interesting. You know, so John is here, you know, he's got to serve 12 more inches. Serve from, yeah. I think modifying the racket would be, um, you know, yeah, way, way to do people it. would be up in arms and, you know, can you imagine? But the players are the power brokers say, okay, there's one standard racket yeah. um, with, you know, like saying pole vaulting. You know, they used to try to pull vault with a bamboo pole. Well, mm-hmm. then they went to fiberglass and graphite. So technology has changed. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not high jumping. It's, you know, it's, you know, how many, how many balls are being hit? They changed the grass at Wimbledon. Yeah. And the very first year they changed the grass. Now, Bandian and Hewitt were in the final and there were zero serve volley points. And I think that was something too. They took the contrast out of tennis where it used to be to go from the French on red clay and then a couple of weeks later be playing on the grass. But now players are playing the same style on all four surfaces. Yeah. With, um, you know, like the, a couple of years back, I mean, Query, obviously, I'm not taking shots at a guy that good, but where he beats Djokovic. Mm-hmm. And as great as Djokovic is, well, if he's having a real bad day, like, does he have options? You know, where, I mean, he one time played in a match where he lost. He had played 253 points before he served in volley. Andy Roddick was the best tennis player in America for close to a decade. One time in a Davis Cup match, is Patrick McEnroe, you could hear it, with the courtside mm-hmm. mic and said, why do you serve volley? He serves in volley. But he played five sets on a hard court in California and didn't serve in volley once. And he's just dropping bombs. Yeah. But, um, you know, he doesn't have a very good volley his technique on his volley um, with, um, you know, I mentioned Austin Krychek, uh Tennis Sanger is a fun guy. And um, it, he's had a, a, a pretty solid career. And they're both, I think, 30, 31 years old, 31. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're, they're in the Olympics and they're playing for a medal. And I can remember he had a hip operation and he left his car at my place. And then I, mm-hmm. you know, I've never coached him for a second, but I was around him when I was w- with Austin because they were playing doubles on the tour. And I said, tennis, when you come back, they said, pro bono, I'll help you with your volley. And, um, but I think players are very suspicious. You know, the, the higher level a player becomes, the more people talk to him. Yeah. And, 
Um, again, it's not like you said, uh, as far as other sports, I mean, there's not so many different ways to come out of the starting blocks. There's not so many different ways to stand on the foul line and Michael Jordan shadow swinging like this with his palm or a golfer is not going to go, Hey coach, of course they, you know, their, their coach, it's not, you don't really even know who the coach is, a swing coach or like a baseball player. They do hit off a, a tee in baseball for 15 mm-hmm. years. I taught right next to where the Yankees practice, but somebody's not going to take a putter and go, Hey coach, I think I should do this with my putter instead of, instead of just yeah. going. Yeah. So um, the strength of the individual comes out. There'll always be individuality, but style is a problem. You know, I say this on, and I'm flattered to be asked to be on your podcast. I'm very repetitive just drive home some certain points. When crummy plays crummier, who wins? Crummy wins, but crummy doesn't know they're crummier. And, you know, there's, that's where we, we have kids come in, they fly in and someone's told them to come and work with us. And we have a, a drill called the tiebreaker test. And you have to hit six shots at designated targets to score one point. Mm-hmm. We have some kid come in there just happened a week ago. They're, they're top 10 in their section. You know, this is a young player. They're 07, 07 on the tiebreaker test. Well, in other sports, the way you talk to a kid is like, if you were a basketball player and you were in a boat, you, you couldn't hit water. But what happens is that the customer's always right. You know, uh, one of my friends who's in the service businesses in, in tennis has done really well. Well, his business, the customer's always right. With me, the customer, they tease and say the customer's always wrong. Kid comes in and go, no, 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 no. Even the recruiting process in college tennis is oh, you can come to our place. You don't have to come in the first fall of your freshman year. Just come in January. Plus what we're going to do is send you to pro tournaments. And that's not what I would be telling. If I was at Kalamazoo and I've been there many times, had my students and my students win Kalamazoo or San Diego. Um, Actually, speaking about doubles, San Diego, uh, Dave Anderson spent years with uh, Ashen Kruger. She just won Mm -hmm. doubles, won six, one, six, oh. She won the singles. She gets to play both singles and doubles US Open. Yeah. She's not going to the net as much as she used to. And that's, uh-huh. to me, that's a crisis. And for her, someone should just say, hey, that's going to be the easiest money in your career. And she should play doubles. Um, not too long ago, Tissy Pass signed up for the Italian Open. And people, people paid attention to that. If, yeah. if, you, if you play doubles, you're working on your return. You're working on your service motion. You're working on your net appearances. Yeah. People can become better singles, play, singles players by playing doubles. Um, yeah, I know the years ago, and Andy, Andy Fitzell is always talking about this, is that the ball is coming almost twice as fast, and he'll rattle off the numbers for that. But years yeah. ago, they would, the best players would play all three events at the Grand Slams. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, I'm just playing singles. It, yeah, so there's it, just too much money in it. It's Money, but also, you know, especially on a hard course. Like when Nadal finally won in Australia, he said, yeah. and he's such a classy guy. What great character. And Dahl said, now that I've won on a hardcore, I'll say this. We need to have less tennis played on a hardcore. Because he said, when I'm older, I want to be able to play, you know, his word for it, football, play soccer yeah. you know, with his friends and his family when he's an older man. So uh, a lot of pounding. And, I, you it's know, tough, now yeah. you see a lot of kids, I should say, pros. They just, they hit the open stance forehand. They have a lot of problems with their right hip. But mm-hmm. um, no, no. Um, Junior tennis doubles is really an afterthought. There's an, we're, we're yeah. five and a half miles uh, right now from the national campus, and there's a doubles tournament coming up. There's a national tournament, mm-hmm. and um, they have the different age groups 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s. 
And you know, you really could count on your hand, just walk around, okay, I'm gonna spend, you know, I'm here, just had breakfast, I'm gonna stay till yeah, lunch. Check out the courts. It's been half a day here. And you could bet someone, okay, are you gonna see five players? You're gonna see definitely less than 10 players that serve in volley. Yeah, and you definitely will. So, um, no, I think, you know, Braden has his tape, go for a winner, doubles, uh, mixed doubles is a fantastic adventure, but it's really everything that's on that tape that was made in um, the 70s, one take, amazing tape. All those principles are exactly the same. The principles are the same with stroke production. The dimensions accord, physical laws dictate stroke production, no coach's opinion, any unique theory. So with, um, it's just unfortunate. Um, people want to win the yeah. two-inch trophy. The teaching pro also, they want to keep the customer happy. I don't know the key to success, but I know the key to fit. I don't know the key to success, but I know the key to failure. Make everybody happy. And, <laughs> you know, people don't want to lose, but, you know, Bill Tilden, tennis players are born out of defeat. Mm-hmm. Virginia Wade, winning tennis doesn't lead to beautiful tennis, but beautiful tennis leads to winning tennis. Roger Federer, he made a list when he's a kid, ENTP, made, he's a planner. Rod Vic Brady said, Hi, how'd you become so good? He said, well, I made a list of all the shots I needed to be able to hit. Plus, he had a secondary motive that he talks about. You know, I'm, you know, Roger Federer geek. I've read so much and listened. Okay. Roger Federer, any, any of the top players, you know, I mean, he's been in the game as long as I have, is Roger Federer had a motive that he wanted to look good, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, Andy Roddick. Well, he, he accomplished that. <laughs> Andy Roddick. Roger Federer is an artist, a technician. I just have to hit the crap out of the ball. But mm-hmm. by the time Andy came on the scene, as great a player as he is, or you go back a different era, Michael Chang, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, they weren't going to be asked to play doubles. You know, at one time, the, yeah. the United States, and they took too long. The U.S. Davis Cup team, they took too long to ask the Bryan brothers. They were very polite mm-hmm. guys and classy. They handled it very well. Yeah. They took too long to ask them to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was uh, Chris Woodruff from Tennessee. I mean, they were just reaching for, and he was more of a backcourt player and, yeah. A good tennis player, but um, no, the uh, I think tennis teachers should be united too. I think that's another thing too is that what, what we have is really wrong is that we have merchants of flesh. We've got people get into business because they can hit the ball. The consumer doesn't have consumer knowledge. They think it's a shortcut if their kid starts taking lessons from someone who's got a little bit of a playing background. Mm-hmm. And then they're out at the weekend tournaments handing out business cards to kids who can already play. And, you know, then what happens is it's like no one wants to teach the beginner. And that's where the, t- the numbers of tennis are going down. And that's where it's like, no, it's, it's cool to teach beginners. You know, you know how, many, how many tennis players actually come from your club? Yeah. I would say that too many people at the grassroots level, I understand college tennis to a certain extent, not having um, as much development as it should. But, okay, they're recruiting players. And okay, I'm going to work within a player's game because they were taught, they weren't taught. They have these uh, very inefficient grips, but they're going to be a grinder for me. They're going to play six doubles. They're going to come get an accounting degree and they're not going to play doubles. Okay. They're going to win sure. for, for your flag, for your college. But um, no, it really needs, you know, that, that line that we use often, no substitute for a good beginning, but double should be important. Learning skills yeah. to play all court tennis should be important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's, it is interesting to, um, I want to talk more about this 
maybe another time, maybe we do a round two, but um, yeah, the, you, you said no one wants to teach the beginners. And I think that kind of makes sense to me. If, if a lot of the coaches don't have a good uh, kind of foundation or system for teaching beginners, then they would probably get frustrated doing it because they, right. they wouldn't see success with it. Right. Um, if they don't it's know like, how to like do it. It's like a college athletic director. For the most mm-hmm. part, they, they, they know football. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's basketball. It, it's, it's sure. like the university is a football university is a basketball university. <laughs> right. But it's a pretty safe bet they don't know tennis. Yeah. You're going to hire somebody who comes from a winning tradition. So young coaches sure. now, they're not really thinking so much about being mentored by someone who can really teach and coach. They want mm-hmm. to get connected one of the Power Five conferences, a team that's doing well. And it's more direct, of like a P- PR hire a lot of the time, I guess. Yeah, very good. Interesting. Yeah, very well put. A director, a general manager at a club, they hire somebody with playing credentials. Credentials, yeah. credibility. Credibility means you're believable. doesn't mean you're truthful. So what happens is that that director gets a salary. They get a percentage of everybody who's working around them. Mm-hmm. They hire personalities, keeps everybody happy, make it fun. Customer's always right. And then they put the, the least experienced, they get a high school player with a personality and they're teaching the tots, yeah. they're teaching the little kids. And that's where coming back to the governing body of tennis, you know, let's see how you're doing here. How, you know, yeah. how many players have you produced? And we know that players shop and bop and be difficult to regulate, but sure, you know that term "united." There's the the PTR change, professional tennis. Trade, they they were going by USPTR, and I've been a member mm-hmm. forever of the tester. The USPTA United is, um, I think, the internet. You know, Dave Fish is a bright, such a bright guy from Harvard. He thinks these podcasts are great formats to have a conversation, and people start to listen. Well. Um, so much bad information is going out so fast with all these. And I, I don't really like being on social media so much. And, you know, <laughs> we're not charging fees to be, to, to be, to be a, uh, a YouTube guru sure. on the, on the serve. I can teach you to hit your serve 10, 15 miles an hour faster. And here are the first three secrets. But if you want the four remaining secrets, we need your credit card. It's $450 worth of instruction. But for right now you can have it for $90. And yeah. you have it from midnight tomorrow. And it's like <laughs> WCP. That's a pretty good pitch. Where can I buy? <laughs> I'm, I'm just, just telling you what's out there. There's no Yeah, that is what's out there. Yeah. That's exactly what it says. But WC Fields, there's a sucker born every minute. And mm-hmm. the consumer needs to have consumer knowledge. The, the teacher needs to have product knowledge. And if there's product, that means you can produce a product. And that, you know, with your doubles podcast, you know, yeah, we need to have people learn a proper service motion. They need to be able to hit spin on their serve. They need to be able to come in one, two, three split and move forward through their volley. Um, but I think people are just, you know, the term spin, people are just putting a different spin on it and they're calling it theirs. Yeah. And that's, that's just the opposite of what we're doing now with uh, grateful for Andy Fitzgerald's wife doing so much over the last two years. We've done a lot of work together, but or now the, more people know that the great base is not quote unquote. I mean, it was Steve Smith stuff or now Steve and Andy stuff. And it's, it's based on homework. And, um, yeah. you know, we, what we lost the NTR as NTRP hasn't been perfect. Mm-hmm. The NTRP has been very good model for social business. We don't have youth versus veteran matches anymore. It used to be that young kids would play, um, 
adults, veterans. Players, yeah. And, you know, so you're playing some doubles and it's like, okay, come to the net, kid, come to the net. Yeah. And now kids don't, they don't play with adults. They're not, they used to take a private lesson and call, you know, Mr. Johnson up, hey, can we, would you play with me uh, once a week? And you don't, you don't really see that. So, um, yeah. you know, I think the UTR, UTR is kind of doing a little bit of it, it seems like. I think it, here in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, kids aren't really traveling so much. Um, it's amazing what's going on in the south of Florida. Mm-hmm. Everybody's there just playing UTR tournaments. That's where wow. the competition is. And, you know, maybe that changes in a couple of years from now, but, um, you know, Dave Fish, Dave Howell put the math together, but Dave Fish was really the person who launched the famous white paper. And he had so much uh, to do with being the father of the UTR. Um, But the UTR is really not a rating now. It's a ranking. If someone tells you they're a 9.2 or a 9.25, that's a ranking. And, um, to me, and I help uh, in the initial stages, I used to write for a magazine called Tennis Life. And I, I said, well, it's $1,000 a match. It's $1,000 a t-shirt. Kids shouldn't be getting on an airplane. The USTA used to have, there never was level twos and level threes. It was just level ones. So kids played more at home. Mm-hmm. And then it was most like, the, most like the checkbook system. And it would be this bad. This is, you know, exaggerating. Well. There's a tournament in Honolulu and you're living in Boston or vice versa. And you're waiting, waiting to see if you make the cut. Well, the tournament in Honolulu, that was the easiest one to get in. So some kids in Boston going, Mom, can I go? Can I go? And they're going to a national tournament. And there's so much money being spent. So that's, a, that's something that needs to happen. Besides your promotion of doubles, tennis needs to be less expensive to learn how to play and less expensive yeah. to, play. to play. And I, think, yeah. I do think that... Uh, People that are in charge of tennis courts should have missionary zeal for getting young kids to play with old kids. And like, let's have a tournament. Let's have a, let's have a, you know, Ed Krass has the, what he calls the one-on-one ghost doubles. Mm-hmm. That's how the best players in the world play. They, I'm specializing in the deuce court house. My partner plays ad court. And, you know, I remember watching uh, Bob Hewitt and Fru McMillan years ago. That's how the best players play when they practice. They're specializing in that deuce court or ad court. Um, so that's, that's something that should really be promoted. The one-on-one doubles, but also um, youth versus veteran matches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fun opportunities. Okay, let's you know, why can't we have a um, you know, we have a serve and volley tournament. Yes, serve and volley both balls. Yeah. And um, but the, you know, uh, Tommy Haas actually with Ed Crass at one time said, well, with ghost doubles to make it more successful. And Tommy had a really good point for, as far as business goes is let mm-hmm. people serve and stay back playing ghost doubles now. And it's, uh, to me, the term is no, don't, don't sell out for money. Hold, you know, hold true to your principles and go, the, the Ed Crass one-on-one doubles. It's like, let's serve and go, serve and go. And um, if a kid plays high school tennis as a freshman and they play one up, one back doubles, what are they going to do as a sophomore? You know, yeah. it's not muscle memory, it's brain memory. They're conditioned and they're being conditioned to play the wrong way. Sure. I, mean, I, I do give people knee jerk reaction. And a lot of people say, well, what do you think? You know, what do you think of my, my kid's tennis game? And I said, well, the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming right at him. And change is change. We all know that the change is very difficult. Change yeah, in anything. It's you know, uncomfortable for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. yeah. Coming to the net anyways, it, you know, adding that to your game. Um, 
Yeah. Definitely uncomfortable for a lot of people. So, uh, we, let's see, we've been on an hour and a half, Steve. So I want to wrap it up here. Um, do you have any, uh, final requests for the audience? Um, yeah, I think with your audience, love, love doubles, play doubles, call people up. I think that this is something that's very important. If everybody once a week mm-hmm. would call somebody up, that's a lesser player, you know, ex- you know, the word superior, inferior. I think that's something to mention, not to digress, but typically what happens in doubles is two superior athletes playing an inferior system will win. So winning's not confusing. It's totally confusing. But one thing to share with your audience is that to break the tennis clicks is I think to be a little, to be more altruistic, more giving and say once a week, I'm going to call somebody up. It could, could be a, a veteran player, an adult player, find a way where adults and juniors can practice with one another. Mm-hmm. But if the four or five player once a week would call the three, five player up and go, Hey, I learned this game, you know, cross court doubles, one on one on one doubles, one bounce doubles. Mm-hmm. Let's get together and play or even 50% tennis. You know, you can have a four or five team playing against a three, five team. And the four or five team cannot hit a winner. You can only mm-hmm. win with players. Yeah, so they're coming up to the net and they're playing 50% tennis. Now, yeah. one of the problems we have with tennis is the people running tennis, they found the air conditioning. They got out of the sun. They don't put on sunscreen anymore. And the people that are governing tennis teaching don't teach tennis anymore. So yeah. you have all these committees and it's like, well, when's the last time you gave a lesson? You know, I have no problem saying Patrick McEnroe, um, you know, one time he was running Davis cup, he was commentating on ESPN and he was a general manager of player development. Now he has amazing background in tennis, you know, played at Stanford, you know, so some people say, well, he's in his brother's shadow. If you're playing tennis at Stanford, um, he won a grand slam title. His brother, brother didn't hit the ball for him. So Matt, Patrick Macker, great, great, great. But, and he was a general manager, but, you know, so, but he hadn't really been in the trenches. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a problem. Uh, I think Wayne Bryan has been great for the game. And then he said that, you know, said so many things that about the private sector. Yeah. Well, I think you also have to, you have to look at every nook and cranny and go, how's the game being taught everywhere? And um, so Wayne Bryan, who's been in the trenches, um, you know, I don't think that he, when he wrote his letter to the USDA and really circulated, I think that's really been put off to the side um, that it's not that the private sector is great, great, great. And the governing body of tennis, not, not just say the USDA, but in this country, the PTR and the USPTA, sure. the whole alphabet soup, the ITA. I mean, Dave Mullins with the ITA, you know, he's reaching out and get older coaches to talk to younger coaches. Um, but, you know, people need to get in the room and go, okay, should we promote serving volley doubles? Yes or no. <laughs> should we let it become should we let it become a, uh, a lost art yeah it's it's, it's a problem and yeah, you know that's where i like say you know okay i want to win i don't want to be a losing coach so i'm going to let this one kid um from slovenia who's on my team you know i think of blas rola he won three tournaments great guy lefty hard worker handles himself mm-hmm. so well with uh, chase buchanan they won three titles 
in college tennis, playing mm-hmm. one up, one back. And my son was a player at Ohio State. And yeah. I, you know, for me, it's like, that's too bad because that doesn't translate to those guys playing beyond college tennis, being able to yeah. play. So even though they won, it's like, yeah, well, really? I mean, they went to college to get better. And certainly, it, I, you know, think so much of Ty Tucker, you really helped my son out. So it's not a shot by any means at Ohio State, but um, yeah. Yeah. fact-based instruction for long-term development. Yeah. Whether, and I don't, you know, I, I, I think it's really a problem with, say, you mentioned 3-0 tennis. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it should be this, I mean, it's, it's really a charade that if you can coach a 3-0, 3-0 player, one of our longtime students, Eric Overarmy, passed away. I used to tease, say, I'm a 3-5 world-class coach. And mm-hmm. with, but he could teach lights out. Yeah. But because he was teaching 3-5 ladies, he was typecast. And, you know, he could be at a tennis conference. It's like, there's a pretty good chance that Eric's there. There might be a couple people there that know more than he does. But, I mean, he's passed away now. But with, I think that's something, too, is that, um, you know, the people that are surrounding world-class tennis players, it's like the other night with Kevin Anderson, four people talked to him while he's hitting tennis, hitting tennis balls. It's like, really, Kevin, at this point, um, you should be telling them. I mean, don't, you know, you should just know you're, you're I don't know, I think you may be six, seven, six, eight, that, you know, yeah. you should know that you know, you've been out here for, we've been watching practice for an hour and a half and, you know, you haven't hit an overhead yet, you know? Yeah. So how, how does that really differ than going to the 12 and under tournament? You know, the 64, 10 year olds plays a term who wins one 10 year old, get yourself in trouble. 64 idiots play it, plays a tournament. Who wins? One idiot. At a 10 and under tournament, who's the smartest person at a tennis under at a 10 and under tennis? Who's the smartest person at a 10 and under tournament? It's the parent who whoever wins. So again, winning, you know, go back to John Wooden principles from basketball. He yeah, never mentioned winning. Winning is a byproduct of skills. And right. So, yeah, I can ramble it on for tennis, but uh, I hope I like, have made some points of interest for your listeners. Yeah, these the stories are amazing. I mean, I could really listen, and I know you have even more, um, and I can listen all day. Uh, but, um, yeah, let's wrap it up here, and, and maybe we'll do a part two sometime. Uh, I'll definitely include links to everything in the show notes, and uh, people listening can find more um, on everything you're doing over at greatbasetennis.com, and we'll link to that as well. So. Uh, thanks a lot, Steve, for joining us. No, no, you're welcome. No, thank you. If you're a doubles player, you'll love our weekly doubles newsletter. Every Thursday, we send you doubles tips and strategies to help you improve your game and become a smarter player. When you sign up, you'll get a free 10-page guide on how to play with more confidence and dominate at the net in doubles. You can go to thetennistribe.com to sign up now.